This is Barron's Live. Each weekday, we bring you live conversations from our newsrooms about what's moving the market right now. On this podcast, we take you inside those conversations, the stories, the ideas, and the stocks to watch so you can invest smarter. Now, let's dial in. Hello, and welcome to Tech Trader on Barron's Live. I'm Barron's Associate Editor, Eric Savitz. Together with me today is my guest, Jonathan Curtis, who is fund manager at Franklin Equity Group, where he helps to run their technology fund. Uh, We have so much to talk about, Jonathan. Thank you for being with us. Yeah, very exciting time. Thank you for having me. So let's talk a little bit about this year to date. Uh, It's a tale of two years. Last year was such a difficult year for technology investors, Um, and we are, I think, surprisingly to many people kind of off and running uh, with the start of the new year. Tech stocks have been on a tear, uh, big ones, small ones, uh, fast growers, small growers, everything seems to be working right now. Give me a little sense, Jonathan, of why you think that is and uh, whether this is the start of something new, a new phase of the market, or whether we should be a little more skeptical. Yeah. So um, I can't really talk about where we are right now if I don't spend just a moment talking about where we came from. Um, So certainly we came from uh, a lot of pull ahead demand during the the pandemic. Obviously tech ended up being the antidote before we had an antidote for for COVID. And that ended up pulling ahead uh, a lot of demand and all sorts of themes took off. E-commerce, cloud accelerated, um, work from home, a number of uh, very exciting themes and many themes which we think have a great long-term uh, growth tailwinds, but certainly a lot was pulled forward. And then in November of 21, when those inflation prints started coming out, it was clear that central banks were going to need to act and um, raise the cost of capital and ultimately, in so doing, bring down uh, terminal multiples across all duration assets, tech included. And so the first two thirds of last year were really about rising interest rates and falling multiples. And it, it had everyone. Um, And then the final third of the year was really about us starting to see some of those demand tailwinds that we had during the pandemic starting to roll over. And so now here we are at the beginning of the year. And certainly I've had to become a a Fed watcher um, and a fundamental analyst. And as part of that Fed watching exercise, you're starting to see evidence that some of those inflationary pressures are getting under control. Mm-hmm. And you're starting to hear uh, Jay Powell talk maybe a, just a click more dovishly. And so investors are starting to say the rate cycle is coming to an end. Mm-hmm. And all of those tr- multiple pressures we saw over the pr- past year, some of that is starting to reverse. So that's some of this good performance we've seen year to date. Mm-hmm. But we also are in, in, a, I think, a good spot where a lot of the subsectors in tech have also had numbers cuts. Um, you know, we, we are sort of three quarters into now sub-seasonal growth across every major part uh, of tech. That tells me that we are in a digestion phase, mm-hmm. uh, numbers are coming down, and when numbers come down, investors probably feel a little more safer about dipping their toes back in, that, that, that there's a base on which they can stand. And so, uh, you know, we've seen good results from certainly the semi-guys year to date, some of these ad-supported models. Uh, that have had a lot of pressures, not only from Apple, but also uh, in ad spending post-pandemic. 
Those numbers have come down. We're hearing the companies talking about efficiency, which also gives investors some confidence yes. that there's a base to stand on. So, so I, I think that explains some of what we've seen here to date. So, so, so to your point, like we, you know, we've been through this phase where there, in some sectors, dramatic reversions, right? So think about PC sales, which boons during the pandemic and then have been cratered since and seem to be going right back to right about the level they were pre-pandemic, which was like very little growth. Semiconductors, we went from, you know, insane shortages, no one can get any parts to do anything, affecting the production of all kinds of in-market goods to surplus of lots of things um, and just terrible numbers uh, like last few quarters from companies like uh, a particular commodity driven ones like Micron, uh, where the numbers have really fallen off. Yeah. And uh, now some of that is clearly about um, adjusting inventory levels at their customers where they in fear they couldn't get enough parts bought extra and then suddenly now they have too many parts and so we're seeing that sort of version um, i think one thing that is a little bit of a new wrinkle that we've just seen in the last couple of quarters is enterprise spend and we're seeing that in cloud i mean uh, most most visibly in uh, the large cloud players amazon microsoft google have all slowed their growth rates uh, but you're even seeing it in places like security that people thought would, well, that's immune. No one's going to stop spending on security. They might not stop spending, but they're spending maybe a little bit less. And so yeah. uh, to your point, estimates have come down. Um, uh, people are cutting expenses. You know, you talk about efficiency. Um, I, I think uh, Mark Zuckerberg on the Meta call uh uh, last week, was it last week? Um, it uh, feels like a long time ago now. Uh, said the word efficiency like 30 times, right? Like I couldn't stop talking about it. I described them as Mr. Efficiency in the, uh, yeah. in the magazine over the weekend. So, so you do have all these things. Of course, the question, and sort of there seems to be this idea that like, well, fundamentals will be a little bit tough the first few quarters of the year, and then things are going to get way better at the end of the year, and the Fed's almost done, and it's going to be off to the races again. And that would be great, but I can't help thinking we're missing something. Like, like yeah. what what what's your scenario for what happens in the second half? And is this really a one or two quarter problem like this uh, uh, before we get like a pickup in demand again? Yeah, it's an excellent question. I did a little analysis on this this weekend, but I'll make it even simpler. Satya, uh, the CEO of Microsoft, was right. in India at the end of last year or the beginning of, of this year, and he was pressed by one of your peers um, at another uh, publication about how long he thought this this digestion phase could go on. And he suggested it could last as long as two years. So I did an analysis this morning where I added up all the names that have reported uh, results year to date and looked at all their revenue in 2018, 2019, and through the pandemic. And let's assume the pandemic never happened um, and that the these businesses sort of were on a trend trajectory, then how much would would digestion have to occur uh, to get us back to what maybe revenue levels should be across those companies? Um, you know, if we if we did all that digestion in a year, then like numbers have to come down uh, pretty dramatically here this right. year. Um, I don't think it's going to be a year of digestion. It's probably going to be a year, year and a half, maybe two years. So now this digestion isn't going to mean that we're going to go negative on uh, certainly on a lot of these software companies or even cloud, we're just going to see lower levels of growth, a more calmed environment. 
But there are also reasons for, for optimism around that. One is we are seeing the numbers cuts happening uh, on the demand side. We are seeing the efficiency uh, uh, gains coming through. Pretty much every company that has reported thus far, with a couple of exceptions, have reported uh, or announced some amount of layoff activity. Um, and some of it's substantial. So that's, I mean, terrible for the people who are losing their jobs, but good for investors in that they are getting a, a sense for sort of the, the bottom in what the margin cycle might be for some of these companies. So that all says we're starting to stand on firmer ground for getting your toes back in the water, we think, in, in some of these names. You always want to own quality. You always want to own companies that have dur durable growth. You want to always want to own companies that are uh, priced at reasonable levels uh, versus their, their long-term trajectories. But we think now is starting to be a good time. So, you know, I, I made the point in the week over the weekend in, in the tech trader column that if you look at the Q1 numbers from the largest tech companies, right? So the, you know, the five biggest ones, I'm counting, you know, Microsoft, Apple, Amazon, Alphabet, and Meta, and you add them together, they had 1% growth yeah. in the quarter. And these are like, you know, these are core own core holdings. I don't think you own all of them, but they're core holdings for you know typical growth funds. Yep. And there's no, there's currently no growth. And when you look at the the guidance, or actually most of them don't actually provide detailed guidance anymore. But like if you look at their hints on what to expect in the the first quarter, it's still not going to be great. Meta's still not growing. Apple, we don't know, but may not may not be growing, um, and so on. Right. So. Uh, you get a little bit better growth out of Amazon, uh, but but their e-commerce business isn't growing. So so I'm wondering how you think about those large cap names as you know as you try and put together like a tech growth portfolio. How should we be? I mean, obviously one quarter doesn't define the trend, the forward trend yeah. or the opportunity that they face. But how do you think about that um, situation and their ability at these very large, a very large scale? still generate uh, good growth. Yeah, so if you look at the strategy we run, we own some of these names, certainly. Um, but the fund is much more tilted towards smaller and mid-cap companies mm -hmm. that are still earlier in their growth trajectory. So that's, that's one thing you do. But let's talk about the fundamentals of these companies. Um, they pulled ahead a lot of demand during the pandemic, and then the world changed in mid-2022 um, with, uh, with reopening. And a lot of those growth trends came off, uh, but we don't think they're done. And we can touch on any one of those names uh, individually if you'd like. But you know, if if I look at e-commerce, for instance, still many many categories that are be, that need to move on to an e-commerce platform. Cloud, my golly, the biggest opportunity I think in all of tech is is cloud. Um, it's getting a a major shot in the arm with all this exciting stuff we're starting to see around AI. So we feel very, very good about the long-term trajectories. We are in a, a bit of a, a digestion phase right now, and that could go on for as long as two years. I don't think it's going to take that long. But that's that's sort of the worst case scenario until we get back onto what I like to think of as trend growth for all these businesses. So so let's, let's talk about the cloud. So, um, you know, we saw... Uh, so Microsoft uh, actually had decent fourth quarter for yep. uh, for Azure, but then provided uh, kind of slightly convoluted guidance on their call, which basically 
uh, but, but but the implication was uh, uh, you know they they were going to grow closer to thirty percent than that's right. Uh, maybe the 35 or whatever the street might have been looking for. So kind of disappointment there. AWS um, implied on their call uh, with, by the way, like a surprise appearance by their CEO, Andy Jassy, showed up on the Amazon call. Something Jeff Bezos hadn't done in like, I don't know, ever, for a long yeah. time. Um, so he made a surprise appearance and among other things said, you know, they're looking at, they're kind of at a mid-teens growth rate right now yep. on AWS. Um, you know, Google had a little bit better growth, but like was still down uh, like sequentially. And so it raises a question about um, about how much of this is transitory. And like one of the things they all talk about, uh, certainly Amazon and Microsoft talked about optimize, helping their customers optimize spend as many times as, you know, um, like Mark Zuckerberg talked about like efficiency on the medical these two calls, they kept talking about optimizing customer spends. And I think that the idea, right, is we can help them be more efficient. That's sort of part of the power of the cloud. But it gets at this question about like how we should think about the growth opportunity. Yeah. Is it maybe not quite as big as we thought? So, um, so let, let's build it up from the bottom and then, and then we'll talk about where we are in the, the, the cycle here. Sure. So when we think about the cloud opportunity, it is not hard to get up to something that has a T on it, i.e. trillions of dollars of potential right. ahead. Um, and I'll just make it really simple. Every year, enterprises spend about $100 billion on infrastructure software, so databases, operating systems, management tools, about $100 billion on uh, server storage and networking mm -hmm. gear, so the hardware. Um, and this is all stuff for their on-premise footprint. Right. Um, about $150 billion on application software. And then you know, 600 billion or so on the services to support all that. Right. So if you assume that that is the flow of spend every year, that flow is going into an install base and that install base refreshes every, let's say three to five years, then the cloud guys are going after that install base and trying to move it all to their platforms just right. for the legacy stuff. That means the, the cloud guys are firing against a TAM that could be three to $5 trillion in size. Now, let's not take my word for it. Like Andy Jassy, uh, who used to be the head of AWS, did his own analysis uh, just pre-COVID. He got on stage at AWS reInvent and talked about their framework for the TAM. And he came up with a framework that was very similar to, to ours and basically made the case that we, they were still uh, sort of single digits penetrated in their total opportunity. Now, it moved up during the pandemic, certainly, but... I still think that penetration is low and I still feel very good about my TAM analysis. So what explains what's going on right now? Well, I think it's, it's simple. The elasticity features of the cloud are a feature, not a bug. <laughs> when, when the, the, during the, the early stages of the pandemic, when we needed more compute capacity for e-commerce and work from home, et cetera, we saw a flexing up. Zoom itself used to still runs their own data centers. They had to flex into the public cloud. I think they went onto Oracle's platform to get the, the capacity they needed to, to deal with their needs. Um, and, and they flexed up quite nicely. You can see it in the growth rates for, for all the cloud companies, this flexing up. Well, now we're in a potentially slowing environment and enterprises, particularly the world's largest enterprises, but also these, I like to call them the low cost of capital crew, the startups, um, are in a period of being more efficient 
And so what are they looking at? They're looking at their biggest areas of spend, cloud, and they're saying, how can we make this more efficient? So as part of making it more efficient, they're working with their cloud providers to optimize workloads, turn down workloads they don't need, et cetera. But if AWS or if Microsoft is, is working with, let's say, a large customer like Franklin or a JP Morgan to optimize a workload and potentially spend less in the near term, what are these companies getting in return? What are, what are these vendors getting in return? They're getting bigger commitments, mm-hmm. so a longer duration, and they're getting um, deeper commitments to their platforms, which means that the workloads are getting re-architected and being integrated more deeply into the core services of these cloud providers, which means they're stickier, mm-hmm. which means that that when the guys at AWS or Azure walk out of a meeting with, let's say, with a JP Morgan or a Franklin Templeton and say, um, you know, I'm, we're getting the customer to optimize workloads, they're probably high-fiving one another because, yes, they're taking down the near-term growth numbers, but they're ratcheting up the terminal values of these relationships, and they're making these relationships with their customers stickier because there's deeper commitment. So. Right. We feel like once we get through this 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 digestion phase and this optimization phase, we will see growth uh, return to trend levels, and investors will will be rewarded for owning uh, these these types of names. Right. Yeah, I, I think that uh, feature, not a bug, uh, element of the that you mentioned is a key part of the story, and was kind of part of the core proposition is that uh, absolutely you can dial your uh, you know your your uh, uh, capacity up or down, uh, you know, like literally at the, you know, touch of a button, as opposed to we're running out of capacity, we need to buy more servers, we need to build out more data centers, we need to buy more storage, um, all the stuff that happens with the, if you operate your own data center, um, and uh, it's the beauty of the model. And so you're right, it cuts both ways. And um, we right. obviously are, you know, it's, it's like, uh, if you just think logically about, you uh, if their customers are, let's say, advertising-driven uh, internet businesses or e-commerce businesses or um, other people who have been affected by a slower economy, uh, they are naturally using less uh, capacity or growing less uh, less uh, quickly, and we're we're seeing some of that. So I, I'm curious. Uh, so I want to touch on a couple of specific names. So uh, one that I think is in a just fascinating moment right now is is, is Alphabet. And uh, this is a fascinating moment for a few reasons, right? So they've just been sued by the Justice Department again, right? Um, we we haven't resolved the last time that they so they were sued like three years ago by the Justice Department over uh, allegations involving uh, antitrust allegations involving search. That case goes to trial later this year. We'll see how that plays out. Now they've been sued over allegations involving uh, monopolization of advertising technology. Mm-hmm. Uh, we'll see that we won't see how that plays out for a long time. Meanwhile, we're in this sort of uh, moment with uh, with with uh, generative AI, and there is this perception, uh, right? Because because ChatGPT, which I suspect everyone who's listening to this uh, has used or tried out or certainly knows about, uh, is this you know fantastically interesting new tool, uh, natural language processing of uh, uh, information. You can have a conversation with this tool. Uh, it currently actually doesn't search the internet, by the way. Right. Clear, right. Using um, an old model. 
It's like in a, right. So it's uh, uses a you know model that was a, a set of data that really goes through like some point in 2021. I don't know exactly. Um, but meanwhile, they've got a relationship with Microsoft. Microsoft has been investing in this company, OpenAI, that builds uh, ChatGPT from for from uh, early days. Um, uh, they just did a new round, which they haven't said, but I think reportedly is around $10 billion of new investment into OpenAI. Um, this morning, uh, Microsoft and OpenAI are holding some sort of press event uh, in Seattle, which I'm not currently at. You may have noticed I'm in my house. Uh, but but they're going to announce some new things. Just yesterday, uh, uh, the uh, uh, Google's uh, CEO, Sundar, uh, uh, posted a blog post announcing a new a generative AI application called that is called Bard, which uh, hasn't actually been made available as the public yet, which is coming. And they also talked about new AI applications in search. And then just to complete the picture, before I get to the actual question, uh, there was a story recently in the New York Times about uh, Larry Page and Ser Sergey Brin, uh, who have not really spent a lot of time at their creation at Google uh, in recent years, reappeared on the campus in Mountain View um, and are suddenly re-engaging with the company because apparently they view this trend as either important or threatening uh, or some combination of those. I think it's important to realize, of course, that the company has been investing in AI technology for a really long time. They bought this company called DeepMind, uh, which is a pioneer in AI in 2014. So like they've been at this for a long while, but there is this perception that this is a threat that, uh, that, that Google, which has largely been unchallenged in search other than by regulators, yeah. um, uh, suddenly has a threat in, in the form of the open AI relationship with Microsoft. And I wonder how you think about that and how you think about, um, and the other part of that picture, by the way, just to, uh, I think I should point out is part of the perception is that the nature of these uh, AI applications uh, might uh, damage the advertising potential of search. Mm. Uh, and so it's not just there's a competitive threat, it's that it potentially affects their model. And so I'm curious how you think about all of that and maybe maybe it's all overblown um, or maybe there's something, maybe it's an opportunity to expand their business in some way, or maybe something in between. I'm curious how you think about it. Yeah. So um, neither you or I are at the, the Microsoft event today. <laughs> um, listen, I, I, uh, I just spoke on our morning call about this topic. Um, I think Microsoft uh, has an enormous opportunity with chat GPT and, and large language models in their productivity tools. Um, you know, composing emails, composing documents, making teams meetings more efficient. Like there's a lot they, they can do there. And of course they can also do great things with their enterprise relationships, but the king of the web and the, the king sort of, of, of organizing the world's information is, is absolutely Google. Um, they have a business model around ads to support all of that, but they have recognized the importance of this for a very long time now. Yeah. You mentioned the, the acquisitions they've done. They've been they've been leaders in research here, but they also probably have a bit higher of a bar than really everybody else because they are a trusted source of insight and information on the web. And so I think that perhaps they've been a little more careful about how quickly they've let us see uh, the magic behind the curtains. Right, um, and they were they were careful even yesterday in their disclosures. If you yeah. read the blog post. Um, so there was very careful to talk about 
you know, putting on guardrails, like assuring accuracy, being careful of like sensitivities with the data and those kinds of things. I think I think that's all great. And actually, I mean, more of that type of carefulness from the tech companies, I think uh, is welcomed and, and good for society. So, so good for them. Um, at the same time, I do not view them to be structurally impaired. Um, does it change the ad model potentially and, and the search? Maybe, but it also gives Google a tremendous opportunity to do more for their customers. If I go to a Google search box and say, book me, uh, design for me and book me a fantastic trip to Hawaii, like with this technologies, maybe they can run that whole workflow end to end and never refer me to a partner. Right. And, and in so doing, extract a lot more value out of the chain than they ever did. So, so I, I see it as, um, you know, and then numerous examples like that. Um, a lot more opportunity for them to add value and get me to the right answer quicker um, than, than maybe they even had a chance to do in the past. Um, so, so I'm excited about it. The cost element of this is, I think, very interesting, though. You heard the show, show up on the Meta call. Certainly, it, I think it came up a bit on the Microsoft call. Um, and it even came up in, in that blog announcement that you highlighted. Um, these models, and it goes back to the point in cloud, building these models are expensive and running them for inferency efficiently to support a billion users is expensive. And so, you know, Google uh, has been investing in their own uh, semiconductors here for a long time, um, certainly in their own algorithms. They are going to figure out how to do this efficiently and do this at a cost structure that ultimately allows them to scale probably better than, than almost anybody, I believe. And uh, so I think they're going to be uh, very well positioned for that. But that's a, a great growth driver for the cloud providers, a really fantastic growth drivers for uh, a lot of the semi players. Um, but I, again, I don't see this as some sort of structural uh, problem for Google. I think they're going to turn this into a, a big opportunity. And it really goes back to the idea of being able to do more with a query for their, their users than they ever did before and not refer users off their platform. I think that's okay. very exciting for them. So I want to come back to, uh, to talk about the cloud a little more. And um and, and beyond the large cap names, right? So the, you know, we don't know who the cloud, large cloud providers are, but there's a whole set of companies that either have, that have models that are built on top of the cloud or provide other kinds of services. And you own some of those stocks. Yep. Talk a, a little bit about some of the names that you're excited about. Then I'll ask you maybe about a couple in particular. Yeah. So we own certainly all the big, the big cloud players, but we also own a number of these niche cloud players. Um, and the thesis is that, enterprises are not going to use a single provider exclusively. They're going to run in these hybrid environments. And in so in, if that thesis is correct, then best of breed players are going to be able to slide in between the big public clouds and uh, you know, occupy that space and, and build good businesses on their own. So we own names like a MongoDB, we own Confluent for stream processing. Um, we own uh, HashiCorp for doing uh, management of, of clouds, both on-premise and in the physical uh, public cloud. And we own Cloudflare, which is a really exciting company in the security and network performance and edge cloud computing. So uh, all these names are, are, have a really great growth trajectories ahead of them, even though they may be in a bit of a digestion phase themselves as well. So, so one that gets a lot of attention, uh, which you did mention, is Snowflake. Oh, uh, yeah, we own that. Snowflake, as well. of course, is, uh, you know, they're like a, a cloud um, 
data uh, uh, storage kind of, I mean, sort of an analytic platform, I guess. Yeah, it's an analytic platform, that's right. Um, and, uh, you know, has received a lot of attention. It went public at a very high valuation, um, reached astounding valuation heights last year, mm -hmm. um, but also has one of the best growth trajectories of any company in software. And I'm curious what you're thinking is. I also got a couple of questions from. Yeah, we, we own it. Um, we think not only does it have all those attributes you said, but it also has a very strong management team that um, is really some of the best in the business. But um, what I think is so interesting about Snowflake is that if you look at the legacy data warehouse models, a Teradata or otherwise, um, you, know, you really had to constrain the amount of queries that you put on those platforms because it, it had a direct driver for costs and it really stressed the architectures of those legacy platforms in ways that it made it hard to do a lot of queries on that. What Snowflake, some of its peers have figured out is how to take advantage of that, again, that feature of elasticity and allow for uh, scaling so many, many users can get on and share a common data set and do queries simultaneously. And that has opened up the analytics uh, processing market uh, dramatically. Now, one little wrinkle about the story that, that, um, that I think traders love is it's a consumption-based model. And in times of slowing ac economic activity, um, you know, this would be an area where you might want to optimize costs. I have no idea what they're gonna report, but um, if we saw slowing consumption growth here uh, in the near term, you know, I, I guess that's going to create some volatility, potentially create some volatility in the stock. It does not change our long-term view. I think also what is very exciting about Snowflake is uh, the network effects they're building into the business. Most specifically, they have partners bringing their data to their platform and allowing sharing to go on amongst partners and amongst firms like Franklin and key data providers or players in retail. Like that is going to create, I think, powerful network effects in the business, which will ultimately create stickiness and allow them to have pricing power over the long run. But it does have this this elasticity demand uh, element to the story, which which creates a little more volatility. And right. So if you go back, I think two or three quarters ago, uh, there there was a quarter where Snowflake slightly missed expectations, yep. and it turned out to be tied to a handful of customers, including in crypto mining. Yep. Uh, where their their own businesses had slowed down, and to your point, when you know we talk about a consumption model, that sounds fancy, but basically it's it's like a utility, right? Like you you use more, you pay more; you use less, you pay less. It's that's like, right. uh, and it's uh, on the fly. You just turn the dial, right? Like that's uh, it's like the like the cloud businesses on which they're they're built, and so yeah, so if there's a little bit of a slowdown in your customers' business, they're going to slow down the spend. Um, but I think to your point, it doesn't really, that's a, those are short-term, uh, short-term issues. And, uh, yeah, it's a fascinating business. And to your point on, uh, management team, Frank Slootman, who's the CEO, it started service now he's the street loves him. Um, and, uh, uh, it's going to be a fascinating story to watch going forward. So I want to touch just briefly, we're, we're a little late on time. So I want to just touch briefly on a couple of large names, uh, that uh, have had interesting quarters. Uh, we we haven't really touched on Apple, uh, which mm -hmm. you know had not a very good quarter. Uh, they saw you know they missed on iPhones, they missed on Macs, they missed on wearables. They gave 
you know, they've stopped long ago, stopped providing detailed guidance, but the guidance they did give wasn't super bullish, I would say, about the, the outlook for the March quarter. There's still a lot of debate about the tone of iPhone demand, you know, which was kind of hard to see in yeah. the December quarter because they had uh, production issues. Um, and the stock actually responded remarkably well uh, to the results, despite what was not that a, not that great a quarter. Uh, how are you feeling about Apple here as a core? Yeah, we we own it. The implied guide was certainly below consensus, but it was better than normal seasonal. And I think that's the, the confidence there is being driven by two things, and both get back to China. Um, China reopening means that uh, Apple's uh, iPhone 14 Pro. Uh, units can be produced at a, at a more normal cadence. And because of the issues they had during the fourth quarter, now they're carrying, I think, a bit of a backlog. So that gives them some visibility. But then China's their second largest market, and it's reopening. Um, and you know, we're, we're, they're leaving the zero COVID policies behind. And that's good for just overall demand for Apple. So I think that's helpful in the near term. Um, we will get another iPhone cycle. Um, I think the really exciting part about Apple over the very long run is that they're they are positioning themselves to be the consumer's best digital partner mm-hmm. across all sorts of areas, media, but also financial services, eventually healthcare, maybe automotive, anywhere where a consumer wants to have a digital experience, Apple is right in the middle of it because they're the device you carry with you every single day. They've got a brand of trust. They've got a, a billing mechanism built into the platform. So we, we think that they really the exciting part is how they can move into adjacent categories of services around their core hardware platform. Okay. Um, I could keep going on Apple, but I want to hit a couple of other ones quickly. Sure. Um, one of the, the astonishing stories in its current earnings period has been Meta. Um, sure. You know, and, and of course, like just to set this up, when Meta reported Q3 numbers, uh, the stock cratered, dropped like 25% in one day, and not because of the results, but because there was an expectation, it was a view on the street that they had completely overshot expectations on their spending plans, that they were being irresponsible. Less than maybe it's two weeks later, they announced a big round of job cuts, kind of got religion on expenses. The stock took off, rallied like 50% off the bottom initially. They report Q4 numbers, not very good numbers, like they were okay for the quarter. I think they were a tiny bit above expectations, but still like you know, down year over year. Um, and they announced a even bigger round of job of, of not job cuts, but of uh, expense uh, capex. cuts, uh, particularly on capex. Um, and they announced a huge uh, buyback program, forty billion dollar buyback program. And the stock rallied twenty five percent, like reversal of the Q three situation. Now the stock's now doubled off the bottom. Still isn't grown very much. Um, as I was mentioning earlier, you know, he, Mark has become Mr. Efficiency. He listens. He, I mean, to give him credit, like the street was telling him, you need to be more conscious about expense growth. And he took it to heart. And, um, and the street now seems to be in love with meta shares, still not growing. And I'm, I'm not sure what to make of it. I mean, how are you feeling about them, um, after this like wild, turn of events over the last two quarters. Yeah. The the stock certainly looked expensive go inexpensive going into earnings and it still doesn't look incredibly expensive. Um you know the quarter was okay. 
Um, the outlook was fine. You're right. He, they become Mr. Efficiency. Uh, or the companies become all about efficiency. Um, you know, I, I still worry about, and this is for me personally, and there's other folks certainly within Franklin that own Meta's uh, stock. I still worry about the regulatory risks that they faced um, most acutely here in Europe. Um, and, and some stuff has come out over the past 90 days on that. And then I think broadly they have an, a, a challenge with sort of where they set the engagement dial versus their ability to ensure that the platform is being as safe as it needs to be. And um, I, that just makes me feel uncomfortable. And so um, we've decided that we're not going to own it in the portfolio until we have some better clarity there. Um, but, you know, listen, the, the numbers weren't terrible relative to expectations. It's not an expensive stock. Um, and they have everything you might want, right, which is engaged users, a large data set, you know, access to compute that they, they are going to be able to very much use AI to make their operations uh, more efficient. Uh, in, in the future. And so, uh, so I think that their fundamentals on that regard, I think are going to be just fine. Yeah. And and they did, uh, well, they're not the first company that you think of when you talk about uh, like generative AI, Mark did talk on the call about they're going to roll out some generative AI uh, features on the platform in, in the coming months. We'll see what that really amounts to. Um, but he also touched on the calls. He also touched on the cost of that, which I think is great for the semis guys. I mean, the the cost to generate an image, he said, you know, a, a couple of cents in some instances, like across a billion users and a lot of images generating, that has huge cost implications, and they're trying to deal with that. But that is fantastic for firms like Nvidia. Right. So, so just to so just to, to round things out, let's talk about uh, semis for a moment. You mentioned Nvidia, which also has had something of a revival it has. <laughs> this year. It's had a nice recovery from what was a very difficult. Uh, year uh, on multiple levels for NVIDIA last year. They were you know, clearly, they were hurt by what's happening in PCs. Uh, there's been slow, there were slower spin in the cloud. They, you know, their opportunity in crypto mining was hurt by what happened in the crypto world, which is not really even a market they were directly targeting. Uh, gaming has been squishy, um, but they do have, they are, like, if you're going to do AI in the cloud, um, this is a big opportunity for them. How are you, are you are you bullish on Nvidia? Is that and, you know? And it's, a, it's a big position for us. It certainly had a great move here year to date. I think you did a great job of outlining some of the near term headwinds. Um, but I, I think that really none of us have a, our arms around how big this AI opportunity is going to be. I think it's going to add trillions of dollars of economic value in the years ahead, and all roads point to them. And you know. Firms like a Synopsys or a Cadence or a TSMC or the semi-cap guys that can enable other chips to be built. But really, NVIDIA is incredibly well positioned for unlocking a lot of that, that potential value. Do, do you see AMD or Intel benefiting as well? Yeah, AMD's definitely got um, the ability to sell GPU capacity, but they also have Xilinx, uh, which is where uh, you can deploy models for inferencing. And um, I think that's a, that's a good opportunity for them as well. Okay. Um, one last question um, uh, from reader. Just, uh, it's just, it's a very simple question. He says, "IBM." <laughs> yeah. Um, IBM has been an interesting story. They uh, they dramatically outperformed the market last year. Uh, their turnaround seems to be working. It does. Uh, they are kind of a hybrid cloud play, and and 
they were a pioneer in AI, right? I mean, um, Watson was playing Jeopardy uh, on TV 10 years ago, right? So how do you feel about IBM here? Yeah, good, good cash generation, a lot of revenue, deep relationships with customers. Everything you just said is true. Um, when I look across their various businesses, though, they are really only growing in line with their markets. Mm -hmm. We look for companies that have something really special to offer and can grow faster than their end markets. Um, and so IBM, I think, worked well here over the last little bit because of that, the, the, the durability of their relationships with customers and that cash generation profile. Um, and those are, all, those are all good things, but I, I, I would, I, we prefer to own uh, companies that are growing a little faster okay. and, and, are, and are outgrowing their, their market opportunities. Okay, so we're like 10 minutes over. Okay. Um, so um, we're going to wrap it up for today. Thank you so much for being with yeah, us. This, this is a great conversation. Great. Time flow by. We will definitely have you back to talk more again. Okay. Um, thanks to everyone for being with us. Please join us again tomorrow. Uh, Market Watch retirement editor Angela Moore is going to talk to Ann Lester, who's a retirement expert about maximizing your 401k, Social Security, uh, and maintenance, tricking yourself into savings, other related topics. Thanks to all of you for being with us today. Uh, be well and stay safe. Thanks very much.